2: I have to say that my own acquaintance with the work of Martin Amis was moderate at best. I was actually transfixed by a novel of his called Other People, A Mystery Story. It was a little bit out of the norm of at least the really famous Martin Amis novels. It was a very different kind of piece of fiction, but I remember being just hypnotized by the book and just, very aware of his powers as a writer. Anyway, Martin Amos, very famous as both a writer and a public intellectual, died last Friday. We are updating the interview we did with him in 2018 with some new information and a new interview with Dan Coist. That's all coming up after this news. We're doing something a little unusual today. Well, we should say, first of all, that last week, Martin Amos, the novelist and nonfiction writer, died on Friday at the age, I believe, of 73 of esophageal cancer, the same disease which also took his very, very good friend Christopher Hitchens. You know, they were sort of part of a group of people that includes Salman Rushdie. People have been trying to kill Salman Rushdie for decades, and he, like, did a public appearance last week. <laughs> and everybody else around him uh, has the, has bigger problems. So we talked to Martin Amos in 2018, and so we're going to kind of Terry Gross him today. We are going to air parts of that interview, which was a good one, and he was on his game as usual. But we're also going to begin by maybe sort of updating the information a little bit and talking to somebody who is a great, great admirer of his... And and more besides, and that is well, ladies and gentlemen. He's an editor. He's a writer at Slate. He's a novelist. He's a journalist. He's known as the Jackal. No, he's not really, but he knows. If only, (laughs) if only, yes, but he knows to the penny how much money Jonathan Franzen has spent on his teeth. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Coys, who is the co-host of the Martin Chronicles. I want to say first of all, to my chagrin and embarrassment, like I knew the title of your podcast. But when I, looked it up, when I looked it up by mistake, I looked up My Favorite Martin, which I think also would have oh, been a good Oh, why didn't we think of that? Yeah, I think that could have been a good title. But The Martin Chronicles is a, I would say, sort of limited edition at this time anyway, podcast in which you and some of your uh, Confederates revisit Martin Amos's work. But I think the first thing to do, Dan, is— For those people who maybe know the name but don't really have a full relationship with the work of Martin Amis, kind of locate him a little bit for people who are not in the know.
0: Martin Amis was the son of Kingsley Amis, one of the great British comic novelists of the mid-century and beyond. And he came into his own as a literary figure in the 1970s and 1980s, kind of an enfant terrible, an angry young man of British literature with a style and fizz all his own. He was at that time was writing comic novels that excoriated society in funny and fun ways, while also writing criticism and journalism that dug into the lowlifes and also a highbrow cultural figures that infatuated him. He was part of a cadre of writers of that era. You mentioned Christopher Hitchens, Salman Rushdie, also Ian McEwen. A whole group of writers were famous in the 70s for their long, boozy lunches, followed by all of them going off and writing brilliantly in the afternoon <laughs> and presumably falling asleep. He sort of splashed onto the American scene, became better known in America in the 80s when he began his the big trilogy of novels that he's best known for. They're sort of known to many people as the London Trilogy. Money in the 1980s, London Fields in the early 1990s, and then the Information in the late 1990s. This trio of big, ambitious, zeitgeist-capturing novels were his attempt to sort of say to the step out into the limelight and say to the world, this is the way we live now. This is a way of looking at the way we live now that you've never thought of. And each every sentence of those novels zings with comic energy and a remarkable observation, even as the novels themselves overcome the many, many shortcomings that almost every Martin Amis book shared. <laughs> so
2: at the risk of inflaming you, and it's a mistake to inflame the jackal, I was thinking a little bit, based on everything that you just said, or maybe notwithstanding everything that you just said, I was thinking this morning about kind of whether Martin Amos is a, maybe a little bit underabsorbed into the canon, if there can even be such a thing. There, there's a way in which if he's on the kind of bleeding edge of, if you know, then you know, and pervasive cultural literacy. And, and I'll give you two incredibly lazy examples on my part. Without getting up from my rolling chair chair in my office, I wheeled over to the bookcase and I pulled out, A, the new Yale book of quotations or whatever it's called. But it's a very up-to-date book of of famous quotations. And uh, that book of 1,000 books to read before you die. And Kingsley Amos is in both of them. Lucky Jim is a book you're supposed to read before you die. And he's got some quotes in the Yale thing. Martin Amos isn't. Now, that doesn't really prove anything. But I think there is sort of a way in which he's not – quite as canonical as maybe he might have even hoped to be
0: well he certainly he certainly wanted i think that kind of recognition and i think it would be a little bit of a mistake to like you know feel sorry for poor martin amos for not quite (laughs) making it into the canon as you know as the son of one of britain's most famous novelists born into a literary world you know, with and his stepmother was Elizabeth Jane Howard, another beloved British novelist. You know, famously in the seventies, a group of British critics were trying to think of what would be the most unlikely name for a book ever to be published, and the one they came up with was "My Struggle" by Martin Amis. <laughs> Um, The guy was certainly born into a set of great circumstances. It is true that now, in 2023, he doesn't have the kind of profile of say many of his fellow British writers who, for example, have won the big prizes. Someone, someone like Kazuo Ishiguro, for he's, un,
2: he's unbookered, I believe is the phrase.
0: He's unbookered. Yes, he only even ever made the short list for the Booker Prize once. He, his books were often the subject of fierce debate, angry public debate among Booker Prize juries. You know, some members of which loved him and wanted to canonize him and others of which hated him. He was the subject of a lot of jealousy, and I think he often encouraged that jealousy unintentionally or sometimes intentionally through high living, through reveling in the kind of public profile that uh, a novelist who's not afraid to give good quotes can assume in England and could assume in England over the the last 40 years. Every time a new book came out, he would make some other semi-deranged, semi-political pronouncement about Islam or about Stalin or about Donald Trump, and that would make people angry at him. I mean, he was sort of an expert at uh, th- tossing these grenades into the culture, and his books were also kinds of, kind of grenades. And some people don't like grenades the effect a grenade has upon them when it lands anywhere (laughs) near them. And so I think he was always a pretty divisive writer. That kind of divisiveness means it's harder, I think, to get entree into the canon. I do think that's different now than it was, say, in the mid-1990s, when I think for most serious readers in the 1990s, the name Martin Amos was essentially synonymous with A literary author, a literary author living a literary author's life and having that kind of admirable, remarkable career.
2: Absolutely. So I want to just build on a couple of things that you just said. One of them that occurred to me over the last day or two is that I I think, you know, there is, there's a reason we're doing this show. There's a reason an awful lot has been written and said over the last few days. And I wonder if just in the way that we tend to celebrate frontiers just as they're closing up. There's a way in which Amos is a kind of person who exists and existed in a way that I think increasingly difficult to do. I mean, I, he wasn't careful about what he said. He right. he denied refuting political correctness. He said he was okay with the idea of political correctness, but he wasn't a careful man. He wasn't worried about being canceled. And and I think we're living in a time when people are increasingly careful about that. He's a guy who would have signed the Harper's letter and probably would have said it didn't go far enough. The Harper's letter was the one about sort of basically not canceling people all the time.
0: Uh, but react to that idea. I don't know if he, you know, he he did, he was quite sensitive, I think, in his everyday life on the very matters that he was incredibly insensitive to often in his <laughs> fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in his sort of public statements, the kinds of statements he would make uh, in the heat of a pul- publicity campaign. I th- I would say it's, it's a mistake to sort of overstate the extent to which I think a lot of writers and artists are afraid right now. I do think there are, are some you know, writers who quiver in fear uh, that the next word they write will be the one that gets them thrown off Twitter or whatever. But I still think there are plenty of novelists who are out there basically writing exactly what they want to write the way in the Amos tradition without that much fear or even without that much connection to whatever world it might be that would cancel them. The way we're, that I think of Amos as a kind of throwback is his idea of the novelist as a kind of public figure who matters not only in the artistic and aesthetic but in the 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 cultural and political sphere that someone would look to a novelist to make these big statements about you know 9/11 and the war on terror about islamism about the current political scene in england you know and the idea that a novelist over the course of his career Should be producing the kinds of big books that grapple with the issues of the age and the great atrocities of history. You know, famously, his early books were, you know, funny, scabrous comedies, mostly revolving around characters about his age. Many of his later books were big, fat attempts to grapple with 9 11 or Stalin or the Holocaust. And he viewed that, I think, as part of as an obligation of a serious author to address these kinds of things that if you weren't doing that, you weren't doing the job. And I think that's a different idea of the job than a lot of novelists have today.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think he clearly viewed himself as a public intellectual uh, and, you know, Gore Vidal famously said, you should never pass up a chance to have sex or go on television. I think Amos probably he'd at least to one of those things, <laughs> possibly both of those things. You know, I mean, he's on television a lot. And, and, and there's a way in which I don't think America really has exactly that kind of niche the way the UK does. That no. the, There's a literary novelist who is famous enough so that Fleet Street would care about his goddamn teeth, you know, and how much they cost and also famous enough so that he would say something, you know, uh, of an oracular nature about important public uh, affairs at a given moment.
0: Right. I mean, the closest that America's had maybe in the last 20 years, I can think of two names. One is Toni Morrison, who sort of put herself at that level through pure power of the work, not only her literary work, but her work in publishing and her work as an advocate. But she was not called upon to sort of weigh in on the news of the day the way Amos on many writers in England would be. And then for a brief period, you know, Jonathan Franzen occupied that in the sense that he found himself. Against his will, great at creating outrage cycles in the, you know, in the era of his Oprah canonization and then decanonization. But he too, is just, a, I think, a lot more retiring. And while he has strong opinions about the way the world is now, he has ended up mostly shying away. From expressing those on a day to day basis, they come out when he publishes a book of essays or a new novel, and he's suddenly in the news. But then he disappears for seven years to write the next thing. One of the amazing things about Amos is that he basically never turned down an interview opportunity. He never turned down a chance to opine, but yet every two years, like clockwork, there would be another book, a collection of essays, a collection of journalism, a brand new novel, a memoir in in a couple of cases that that. He was still doing the work of writing. He was still sitting at his desk and producing this incredible wealth of material, the stuff that I think he in the long run thought really was his legacy. Salman Rushdie wrote a very brief remembrance of him in The New Yorker this week and this weekend, in which he said what Amos always said to him was, What you want as an author is at the end of your life for someone to be able to look at a bookshelf and go, you know, from there to there, that's him. Mm-hmm. And Amos never stopped doing that work, even as a million different controversies swirled around him.
2: You know, I know he's a tremendous influence on you and ins- inspiration to you, even as a high school student, I think.
0: Did you ever have any contact with him? Uh, nope. Never met the guy, never interviewed him. It's a great regret of mine that I never had the opportunity to do that. And we started this podcast, The Martin Chronicles. It's, you know, me and Jason Zinneman of The New York Times and Carl Siegel of The New Yorker about a year ago, sort of in part with the idea that this is a guy whose work demands greater attention and critique. And now that he's not the figure that he once was, it does, doesn't always get that attention and critique. And with the idea that who knows how long we have with this guy, who knows how long he's still going to be producing work. As it turned out, there was a year between basically when we started this podcast and when he passed away a year in which we just have started to dig into the oeuvre But it really seems to me that each book we dive into is tremendously rewarding, both in terms of things to admire and and things to critique and things that we find shocking, annoying and absorbing about the way he approached the work of writing.
2: So, by the way, I have just completely fallen in love with Parle Sigel's voice. And you and and Zinneman have been on the show a lot as
0: soon as I get her on the show. We'll never talk about it. She's, a, she's a, like a world-class talker, Carl. Yes. You should get her on the show as soon as you can.
2: And and I just also wanted to talk a, a little bit about him, because I think there's there's a way I mean we're talking about him, but you know, I think there's a little bit of a default in people's thinking to he's this rebarbative kind of prickly guy, you know, who doesn't suffer fools gladly and, you know, will tell off Ann Coulter or something. As well he should. But um you know, I'm listening to some things. Well, first of all, he was nice enough to come on my wonky little show, and I think he was pretty nice to me the, the entire time. But I was listening to this BBC podcast that is hosted by a woman who sounds alarmingly, alarmingly like Philomena Kunk. And it's like all people like mailing in questions, and there's a studio audience that's asking questions, and they're talking about one book. In this case, it's Money, and it's like eight years after the publication of Money. And there's just... And Amos is answering all these questions, and there's just he just seems very patient and congenial and nice now obviously these are fans of his work, but that doesn't mean they won't ask stupid questions but i, I my sense was that there was this one persona that would maybe go on and and you know, trade thunderbolts with with some opponent on television, but he obviously got on wonderfully with with his Rat Pack, and there are, you know, these wonderful clips of him and Hitchens and Amos is talking. You see, you just he, you can see Hitchens just burying his hand in his face, laughing
0: at how funny his friend is. But I feel
2: like maybe Amos is a
0: nicer person than he gets credit for. I think he, my impression is that for the majority of people he ever came into contact with, he was an enormous mensch. And I I think it's not, it should not be surprising that he was famous for his friendships that in fact, when one of those friendships broke up, that was news because those friendships were so famously tight. But when Julian Barnes and Amos Mm -hmm. broke up as friends in the mid nineties in the (laughs) imbroglio surrounding his novelty information and its sale, that was news because that group was so famously tight for decades in supporting each one another's work and lives and also being willing to argue in public amos and hitchens argued in public and in print amos in his book about stalin essentially accused hitchens of you know being too soft on the the death of millions of people and hitchens wrote responses and then as amos said that was it like they that was what that entailed having it out in print was what their friendship required and their friendship remained ever ever a spring afternoon i think amos said about it (laughs) and um it seemed to me that he viewed his role in public as sort of launching these darts and yet, representing a kind of power that literature can have to connect with people, that meant that in the most of his encounters with readers, he was not a you know a scabrous individual. He was not sarcastic. He was not mean. He seemed to really enjoy the work of connecting with readers and talking to them. It was in dealing on the page with the world that he <laughs> that he sort of let his anger and his um, And his dark and bitter caustic humor come out in in full.
2: Just for those of you keeping score at home, uh, Julian Barnes's wife had been Martin Amis's agent and he dismissed her. He fired her and hired the real jackal Andrew Wiley in order to get this really famous advance that he got that was way big for a literary author. Uh,
0: 500,000 pounds, which, you know, now when you think about what it must be that Shirley Stephen King or for that matter, you know, Richard North Patterson or someone gets, it's like nothing.
2: Yeah, but Martin Amis was a literary writer. I think that was sort of the thing. Not that Stephen King, Stephen King is a hell of a writer, but there's sort of a way in which he's a bestseller writer. And where right. you know, right, right, right. Amis was starting to have kind of have it both ways, and he and he did, and people wouldn't forgive him. We have to stop there because there's this other guy who wants to talk. His name is Martin Amis. He is going to be talking to us from 2018 after this break. But it's always just an incredible privilege to have Dan Coice, editor, writer at Slate, novelist. Most recent book is the novel Vintage Contemporary. And are you going to keep doing the Martin Chronicles?
0: Absolutely. We got a lot more books to go through, and they're all incredibly fun. I'm all right. Sorry that we'll never have Martin as a guest, although we also deeply feared the idea of having Martin <laughs> yeah. as a guest. Yeah, I don't I I think it's
2: better uh, just to deal with it the way that you've been dealing with it. All right. Thanks for talking to us, and everybody just stay right where you are. Be, no, no flipping, as Larry Sanders would say. We'll be back with Martin Amos. So as I explained at the top of the show, Martin Amos died last week on Friday at the age of 73. We talked to him in 2018. Uh, He had a a book out at that time. First of all, it was called The Rub of Time, Bellow, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage from 1994 to 2017. And he was— very keen to talk about Donald Trump and his ascendancy to the presidency. He had been on a lot of television shows talking about it and was writing a lot about it. And so, although we've cut out a bunch of it, you're going to hear him talking about Donald Trump in the present tense as president. But we're going to just send you right now to the year 2018 in our conversation with the now deceased author, Martin Amos. Good afternoon, Martin Amos. Good afternoon. I want to start with two things that are of great interest to you, the rise of Donald Trump and the rise of the Nazis in Germany and the subsequent Holocaust. One of the comparisons that you've made is the day after the U.S. election, comparing it to Germany after Hitler's appointment as the German chancellor in 1933, citing the historian Sebastian Hafner. uh, He said the feeling was not of horror. It was of complete unreality. You go out into the street and people look different. The commerce, the cars, it all looks staged for your benefit, completely make-believe, a sick-making feeling. And here it is. And what the F did they expect? I've had that feeling. Not just the day after the election, but I, I find these days, even now that there's sort of a weird cognitive frame shifting that goes on that i'm uh, I'm having a different experience of reality than than i than I had in say two thousand and fifteen. Can you talk a little bit about that what do you think what, what is it that you are describing that that sense that that Hofner describes and that you describe post election
1: well uh the feeling of surely there must be some mistake, uh, <laughs> and it's it's undiminished even now. Um, just every time I hear the the clinch, President Trump, I I think there must be some mistake. Um, that that in fact the mistake is a category mistake, and uh, he doesn't belong in this world of real politics. He's a you know, reality TV star. When he said, I could shoot someone down on Fifth Avenue without losing any votes, he, you know, blunderingly put his finger on something that I think is true, that that his supporters, his base um, in particular, think that he's not really of their world, that he belongs to um, the pseudo-reality of... you know, TV shows. So he is, that's his immunity to a series of scandals that would have unseated every president from George Washington on. Um, the, the people are, are touching wood when they hear him because he's not convincingly real. It's interesting that, um, that the Hitler comparison comes up and it doesn't come up very often and nor should it. I mean, he... He has two traits that he shares with Hitler, and they're they're minor details, really. One is uh, his revulsion at at smoking and drinking, um, though he's not a vegetarian as Hitler was. Uh, And the other is obsessive cleanliness, um, what we would now call compulsive, obsessive disorder disorder. Um, And he's admitted to that, so it must be quite extreme, I think. But what he doesn't share with Hitler, this is the crucial thing, is any great will to power. Um, He didn't want this job. He he announced his presidency to up the rates on his brand. Um, And I think when in his sober moments, evanescent as they are, he realizes that he's... um, in the wrong category.
2: I've been spending some time with your novel, The Zone of Interest, which takes place in and around a concentration camp. And you, you enter the mind of this commandant who has just started thinking about the world in a very, very different way, a way that is unfamiliar to most of us. And so if there's another comparison that I feel Martin Amos invites me to think about. It's kind of that one, that you get in these situations and you start thinking about the world in a way that you've never thought about it before and discarding old ideas that were rock solid to you a few years ago.
1: Um, Yes, I was helped in that project by having read the memoir of the commandant of Auschwitz, uh, Rudolf Mm -hmm. Hirst. And his memoir... um, is almost like a, a wonderful novel by someone like Nabokov, um, where it's not so much an unreliable narrator, it's a completely transparent narrator, and one who has gathered up this ideology, and um, that's what's powering him through. So I I immersed myself in that book and began to try and think and feel like the Commandant of Auschwitz. And I would sometimes plumb my mind for quote-unquote improvements in cruelty and uh, uh, unscrupulousness and stupidity. And I I found that lurking in my mind were uh, greater extremes of horror than the ones presented to me. And uh, you can do this at some risk to yourself. But it's you know the great thing about fiction is that it's like looking at a tiger in a zoo, in that that you've got these very reassuring steel bars between you and the creature. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> you know, it's I would like to write about Trump in such a way, mm-hmm. but it's it's absolutely much too early. You can't write satire about something that's still going on. It's a it's a Hostage to fortune and famous examples of satire like Swift's A Modest Proposal about the famine in Ireland. No. Uh, that was written when the famine was, uh, had been successfully relieved. And Dickens writing about imprisonment for debt, which he did very fiercely in Little Dorrit. Um, when that book appeared, Uh, imprisonment for debt had been abolished Uh, you can only do it when it's over Mm -hmm. Um, so if I do live long enough to write about Trump depending on how long he lasts um, it would take three or four years after he's over before I would dare put pen to paper
2: Right. And I think oh, instead, what you've done is write uh, quite a bit of nonfiction about Trump and his followers. You went to one of the rallies, as did I. You invoked the Clive James Barry Manilow principle, which is that everybody that you know doesn't like Barry Manilow and everybody that you don't know does like Barry Manilow. So these this is another alien group for you. What did you learn from spending time at that rally and with them? <laughs>
1: Well, my uh, hesitant conclusion was that um, what they love about him, and they do love him, as, as I'm sure you saw, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a sort of celebration of, um, I think, a celebration of stupidity. And uh, Trump is in the marvellous position of saying to them, in square brackets or in a whisper, um, you know, you're you're the left behind, you're the... You know, those people who can't live in this accelerated world that we all occupy. Uh, You're not lifelong autodidacts. You haven't got degrees. Um, But people call you stupid, um, and the elite sneer at you. But look at me. Um, I'm stupid. I don't know anything. Um, And I'm the leader of the free world and a billionaire to boot. and this is you know a tr- tremendous affirmation for those who are left behind mm-hmm. when they think I, actually i don't have to change um I don't have to take a night course in computer science. I can just uh go on in my you know blinkered way and um with luck uh fortune will smile on me i mean it it's 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 a very simple. Um transaction between Trump and his base, and let 's not forget for a moment how allied to racism it is, and um, how it 's a result of Obama through no fault of obama 's own uh, except the color of his skin um, you know that it was a i think a baseline for for trump 's core followers, but it's also for every white American. This idea that, you, you know, you're looking out of your trailer where you live or your uh, cracker hut, and um, you're saying to yourself, you know, I may not, you, you have another opioid, and you say to yourself, I may not be much, but I'm better than any black man in, in this country. And when Obama appeared, that had to be, revised um at least subconsciously and and it stored up a great deal of uh, of racism that um that poured forth uh, in November 2016
2: By the way, I'm sure Cracker Hut is uh, going to be an exciting chain of new restaurants. But I promise to you that we will not talk about Donald Trump for the entire show. But there's an interesting little bridge to the present moment. Martin Amos, one of your journalistic pieces here is a foray into the world of pornography and the people who make and perform in pornography. I'll read out one quick quote because I liked it so much. Porno stars, despite being very bad at acting, are very good at acting. Acting in one particular. They can keep a straight face. But then humorlessness, universal and institutionalized humorlessness is the lifeblood of porno. So you're today on this day in history in a unique position, having made that particular journey into that particular underworld. Right now, as you and I are speaking, the aforementioned President Trump is going through a drama involving a person known as Stormy Daniels. So here, here we we have Donald Trump, one of your fascinations, and a porno star who claims some real familiarity with him. I don't know. What what perspective can you give us on all this?
1: Well, um, for a start, um, I think I can assure you I can stick up for the president and say that he never had sexual intercourse, and particularly not unprotected sexual intercourse with Stormy Daniels. Um, You know, to return to his um, obsessive cleanliness, (laughs) um, I I don't, don't, and this is the man who said that every vagina is a potential time bomb. Mm. And um, he couldn't possibly have had sex, even protected sex with Stormy Daniels, because as the very intelligent and uh, perceptive porn star I spent a lot of time with Chloe told me that she said almost the first thing she said to me was I have herpes um, everyone who works in this industry has herpes um, so the really fascinating prospect is that we'll find out you know he he must have done $130,000 worth of something with her <laughs> but um, and uh, I wonder what it is. I mean, it, and it could be absolutely anything, like uh, uh, like her, him throwing cream buns at her, and she says she has some sort of visual evidence of whatever it was they got up to, and um, whatever it is, it's going to be much more embarrassing than coition. Um, it's we're going to see, we're going to get get a glimpse of the polymorphous perverse in the person of Donald Trump, and and there's no knowing what that would be. Uh,
2: I want to switch gears a, a little bit here, although I think we seem to work our way back to the big orange elephant in the room, no matter what we talk about. But you've always written a lot about words about you're interested in the way language is used, much in the manner that that Orwell was interested in the way that language was used. Orwell, of course, wrote about politics in the English language. I'll read the introduction just for people, or the first few words, just to, to remind the listeners. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way, but it is generally assumed that we cannot, by conscious action, do anything about it. Our civilization is decadent in our language, so the argument runs, must inevitably share in the general collapse. It follows that any struggle against the abuse of language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light or handsome cabs to aeroplanes. Underneath this lies the half-conscious belief that language is a natural growth and not an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. You know, we've lived, Martin Amis, through a period where language, again, seems to be twisted around in, in ways that Orwell would both recognize. And not recognize as somebody who monitors the language. Are there particular things that you're noticing right now that are happening to the English language?
1: Well, the, Trump is a sort of bull in a china shop when it comes to language, and you know Orwell was brilliant about this. But um, language has stood up. Um, usage does is self-correcting. Uh, with you take various deficits along the way, but it's still there as, as the central instrument. And we won't know for a while whether um, Trump has done it permanent damage or is just trying to do it permanent damage.
2: We're talking to Martin Amos right now. We'll take a very quick break here and we will be back with more. back. I have to say some thank yous. This show, <laughs> this show spans so much time that it includes two completely different reigns of technical producers. Kion Wolf produced it in 2018. Kat Pastor is producing it now. And we are most significantly indebted to Jonathan McPants, who right away, when Martin Amos died, suggested that we, we could do something like this. We could uh, take the show from 2018 and update it. So we have, he had a, a book out at that time. Called The Rub of Time, Bellow, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. This is, once again, our interview with Martin Amos in 2018. He died last week. Let's hear a little bit more from that day. All right, and we are talking to Martin Amos. His new collection is out. What we're gonna do in the spirit of the collection, I think, or of any collection, is hunt and peck around a little bit here down the home stretch. And I promise you we will explain what John Travolta's name is doing in that title, among those other luminaries. But before we get to that, Martin Amos, one of the things that is done in this collection is occasionally we have these interludes where readers of a newspaper in Britain are allowed to send in questions, both respectful and cheeky, to you for you to answer, and you often answer them in equally cheeky ways. Is this something you enjoy doing? What, what's up with the questions and the answers?
1: Um, they sent me a, a raft of questions, and I chose the ones I wanted to answer. And some of them were cheeky, um, and some were less serious than others. Um, and uh, it, it took me, a, you know, I did make a distinction in the piece about Christopher H- Hitchens about spontaneous eloquence. And um, Nabokov said, I think like a genius, I write like a distinguished man of letters, I, I talk like a, a child. Um, and I was saying how exceptional Christopher was. In that he, he spoke in not only in complete sentences, but in complete paragraphs. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have included a, a, a verbal, an oral, uh, interview. But since I did write my replies and they wrote their questions, um, I felt it was, uh, I felt willing to include those, those two sessions.
2: Did, did you do you enjoy those kinds of exchanges i mean i'm trying to imagine updike prolific though he was doing something like that where people could write in and maybe even snark at him a little bit and while he wrote back was it did did you i don't know did you rise to the to the to the battle here a little bit
1: not really i mean it it's part of the enjoyment of um, public appearances and q and a 's and all that its is that The writer's life is is all solitude, and it's all aspiration and anxiety, Uh, but it's it's solitary. Mm -hmm. And um, I like meeting, never mind about meet the author, I like meeting the reader. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's nice to know that you're making some sort of connection with the outside world, because you wouldn't really know it from what you do all day so it's there's something sociable about it um and I'm more and more convinced that the novel itself is a social form the the right position of being the host and the and the reader is in the position of being the guest and those two words, as Don Delillo has reminded us, have the same root mm. um, there's some There's a strange identity between reading and writing, and it's nice to. To put a, to have a face to address things to, or or a name, and not, not this uh, eternal grouping, which is what writing really is. (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, speaking of DeLillo, you, you and I admire him, and we—I seem to like and dislike the same groups of novels. I, I somebody gave me the the names in manuscript forum, and because they knew I loved DeLillo, and I struggled to get through it. I was almost unreadable to me, but I did feel, particularly at the time of 9-11, that almost that many of the DeLillo novels that I had read up to that point. Players, Running Dog, White Noise, probably a few others existed – well, Underworld underworld existed in my mind to prepare me for something that I, I couldn't have known was going to happen, a kind of tragedy, a kind of world-inverting tragedy that I just – I didn't have a lot of equipment for, but he did, I feel like. I feel like in writing those novels, he, he could somehow or other see what it would be like if the world turned upside down. I, I, and I think you talk about him as sort of a, a supreme author of a certain kind of actual real-world terror. Maybe you can say a, a bit more about that.
1: Well, I think uh, prescience or you know, predicting the future is is not a a, a genuine literary pursuit. And th- there's something in the nature of world events that makes them uh, c- uh, utterly unpredictable. As Philip Roth said, uh, they're the, the remorseless, unforeseen. And there's something essentially in these events that that makes them turn out not as you expected. And anyway you know, reading a crystal ball is not a sort of respectable uh, literary pursuit. But there are certain writers and DeLillo is one, J. G. Ballard is another, where you feel that they have these super sensitive antennae that do receive transmissions from the from the near future. And uh I mean there's an extraordinary bit in I think it's players where he imagines the World Trade Center. This is in the 80s, I mm-hmm. think, as as nothing more than a, a, an illusion, mm-hmm. two beams of light that go up into the heavens, and and um, that is in fact what the World Trade Center became mm-hmm. after after September the 11th. Uh, they became a light show, and that's very striking, I think. Um, it's a sort of serendipity, but it's, it does show some, something uncanny. It does. And um and in his use of language and dialogue, there's something very distinctive and futuristic about DeLillo.
2: You mentioned Roth. Your admiration for him seems to you know few bounds. Uh, anyway, were you surprised when he said he just wasn't going to write anymore? I, I always expect that Philip Roth will always write and Daniel Day-Lewis will always act. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised at any age when they remove themselves from the playing field. Were you?
1: Well, um, you know what the rub of time does. Refer to its effect on writers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and uh, I, th- I thought it was a very dignified way of of acknowledging that—just to, to stop writing beyond a certain point. I mean, this is this is a, a completely modern phenomenon given to us—a sort of mixed blessing by medical science. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shakespeare, Dickens—you know take the canon certainly the english canon and they were all dead by the time they were 60 long dead shakespeare 57 dickens 58 and then you know uh, jane austen 41 uh, keats
0: 25
1: um but so we have the the doddery novelist is, is a 20th century arrival.
2: <laughs> and
1: uh it's it's something that you just it's unavoidable when you read uh almost anybody. There are exceptions, but um where you just see them running out of steam before your eyes. Mm-hmm. They become diluted diluted and watery and it's been argued by many that originality and talent are really the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to to go on being original uh, beyond, you know, half a century of, of a writer's life. Uh, so I, I, it's it put, it gives writers a new responsibility, which is what to do when they feel that the flame is dying.
2: All right, so we're going to end as promised with John Travolta, whom you went and spoke with. There's a great tension in this Travolta piece where he's talking a lot about the, uh, he's been personally excoriated by I think Quentin Tarantino for squandering his gifts. You know, he's told, "You know what Pauline Kael said about you? You know what Truffaut said about you? And now you're making these movies where babies talk and dogs talk and you know and 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 he is. And I wonder if that isn't a more universal problem. I mean, everybody who has a talent occasionally has to struggle, is pulled by two serpents. One of them pulling in the direction of cash and the other one of them pulling them in the direction of their muses. And, and I would think any writer, maybe even including you, has had to fight with those two serpents.
1: Um, well, not, certainly not cash. Um, you must remember that when I started out... Um, it was in the 1973, in my advance, to the, my first novel was 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't a profession that uh, beckoned you with money. No. And, uh, Samuel Johnson and,
2: famously said none but a blockhead ever wrote except for money.
1: <laughs> well, uh, um, I, I disagree. I mean, <laughs> Samuel Johnson said many wonderful things, but that isn't one of them. I don't think um it was it, it the the explosion of interest in such as it was uh in literary fiction came in the early nineteen eighties, and it was i'm convinced it was to do with the expansion of the media um that the papers got fatter, and what filled these extra columns was not more news, but more features. And then they, the featureists ran out of, you know, alcoholic actors and uh, furious fashion models and uh, rapist boxers and all the others and found themselves, sometimes to their horror, um, writing features about serious writers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think... You know, people write the obituary on literary fiction every couple of months, um, but I think it will go on, but it, it may well contract. And the literary culture itself um, will have quite a hard time surviving the Internet, I think. It's the greatest threat. They said the same of radio, they said it of TV, But the Internet attacks the uh, capacity to read a long and more or less demanding book, and the the shrinking attention span is likely to uh, hurt literary fiction.
2: We are going to say farewell here. We've been so lucky to talk to you. Mr. Amos, thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening. Once again, just in case you tuned in in the middle of something, this was an interview with Martin Amos that we did in March of 2018. He died last week. We've tried to update our own understanding and yours. I hope you enjoyed this show.